Good morning, it's DJ and PK. It's 97.5 at 1280 The Zone. Welcome in on a Tuesday morning. All right, we got some college football for you. We got some NBA basketball for you. The Jazz are in the bubble. They've done about a week. And they've only got like another month and a half to go. Wow, it's going to be. That's a long road trip. We've all been on business trips. Man, that's a long trip. On the other hand, they're getting paid a lot of money. So there is that. And if they win, it'll be fun. And if they lose, then they get out. So I guess there's that too, right? You don't have to stand there and get, uh, and get beat night after night for two months at a time. It doesn't work that way. Uh, what is it going to be like? What is the Jazz lineup going to look like? Uh, I think there's a bigger role, obviously, for Mike Conley. There is a bigger role also, I think, for Jordan Clarkson and a bigger role for Joe Ingles. However, those guys will get touches and shots, but how many more minutes are they going to play? Are some of the minutes going to go to some younger guys? Uh, Jarrell Brantley, Juwan Morgan have been talked about. Now, maybe just off Bogdanovich, they won't be. But if there's another injury, will there be an opening for those guys? They're saying really nice things about those guys. They're talking them up. Dennis Lindsay, Justin Zanuck, they're positive, they're upbeat. But is it the point they want to put those guys out there? At some point, will their hand just be forced by what the roster looks like? All things are discussed with David Locke. I spoke to him on Friday. Here's a little bit of our conversation. Any more deep thoughts on the Utah Jazz of the week to analyze and overanalyze what we're about to see? Um, I mean, it's neat that they're back out on the floor. It sounds like they just had a regular practice yesterday, hearing from Rudy. Um, he made it sound like it was just good old days practice. Um, you know, they're trying to figure out, they're, you know, it's crazy because I was texting with one of our coaches and, you know, they're really to some extent like rebuilding a team, right? Like, what's the rotation? Like, and I think we've talked about this before. What's hard for them is they have no data to really know a lot because Boyan and Rudy were on the floor together almost the entire time together. Um, they really matched Boyan's minutes with Rudy. Um, pretty smart. I didn't realize they actually had been doing it during the season. I'm kind of embarrassed by that. Um, but so the only data they have is that the Mike Conley, Jordan Clarkson, Joe Ingles, George Niang, Tony Bradley lineup was really on fire late in the year. Um, and now it's so are you actually trying to build your whole rotation system backwards um, off of a bench unit? Like it's an interesting, they're really almost rebuilding the, how the team plays. I mean, what, I don't know if you've thought about it and it's pretty boring to do on the radio, but you know, I'm assuming you're starting Joe, but frankly, the data shows you that Joe, Mike, and Donovan on the floor together is a really bad idea. It doesn't seem to have worked this year. When you separate them, they actually then it all works. Um, but I think you know we've seen Joe, you know, be un unengaged. Um, I guess would be the phrase. I'm not sure that's a word, but um, on the floor when he's not had the ball in his hands this year. Um, and when you're on the floor with Mike and Donovan, you don't get the ball in your hands. You're really just a spot up shooter. And, you know, he doesn't, that doesn't seem to, to get him to be playing at his peak level. It's when you put the ball back in his hands and he's at his peak level. Well, how, you know, what is the process to be able to get Joe those minutes while he's starting? Um, and it's going to be really, you know, so it gets really complicated. I mean, I think you've got to sub out and sub in pretty quickly because, frankly, the starting lineup doesn't doesn't really work together, but they're, they're, they're missing the fifth guy in every lineup. So if you can put these lineups together to make you believe they're going to work and they're missing the fifth guy. And I think it's going to be really interesting to see who the fifth guy is really a power forward, right? So is it, is it Royce playing four? Is it George Niang playing four? Is it Emmanuel Moutier playing four? Um, 
is it Jarrell Brantley playing for? Is it Jawan Morgan? Like you I just I, you just you got to my next question. Is there somebody who's not playing at all that can be plugged in instead of altering the role of someone and taking them out of that productive role? And Morgan and Brantley, we've heard both privately and publicly positive statements about their development, but that doesn't mean they're at the point in their development where they're ready for this. Maybe it does. You know, maybe it doesn't. I'm, I'm not clear on that. Are you? All right, so I'm going to back up a step because I actually think there's another part to that conversation. And that is, and I have not done the math on this, I know that Corey Jez is the Jazz certainly probably has. And that is the potential seeding situations. Okay? So, like, if we win three games, then I think Dallas can't catch us, right? I don't know that exactly. But if we win four, then so-and-so can't catch us, right? If we win five, then so-and-so can't. Another team can't catch us, right? Like, you're kind of playing your magic number. The, the relevance to that is at some point in this process, your seeding options are going to get really low for the playoffs. Like, there's just, it's going to minimize itself. And at that point, uh, or earlier, if you can kind of figure it out beforehand, you have the opportunity to let Jarrell Brantley and Jawan Morgan play extended NBA minutes and, de- and see a chance for development that you just would never get any other way. Um, in the sense that, one, you're playing only good teams. There's really no, but shouldn't, other than the Wizards and the Nets, and, and we'll see what the Suns do, there shouldn't be anybody tanking. Um, and so, unlike March and April, where you might roll a guy out for 15 minutes and it's not really very like high level, this is actually going to be eight games that are fairly high level against good teams. And it's such a better learning environment and from both the player and the team about the player than the Summer League. Summer League, I'm just not, I'm actually not a believer in it at all, but um, I'm sure coaches and GMs would snicker at me on that. I just often, 90% of the time, I think it's putting a player in a role that he's not going to play in the league. And so Jarrell Brantley and Juan Morgan, in this circumstance, if you just decide you're giving them 14 or 16 minutes, that's 14 or 16 really good minutes in an NBA setting. It might be worth just doing that to see what they can do. The problem is you're trying to figure out who you are for the playoffs at the same time. And if they're not going to be a part of that, which I think is unlikely just because of how young they are and how you know they're not top 10 draft picks, um, then it's a little hard to do that in that setting. But it is an opportunity if things line up correctly. So as far as the playoff seeding, I know there's uh, a bunch of different teams they could face, but realistically, they're not going to drop to seven and play the Clippers. Uh, they could drop to six and play the okay. Nuggets. So the you've, Nuggets done the third? Ma- you've done the math more than me. Without Boyan, playing only good teams, if we go two and six. Well, you're, you're, you're playing the Spurs twice without LaMarcus Aldridge, so I don't know that you're only that's playing not, good That's teams. good for the Spurs, not bad for the Spurs. You think they're going to come in? I, I question... Well, they're just a much better team with LaMarcus Aldridge off the floor, both offensively and, and defensively. And I, I get that. He can be a high-usage guy shooting long, too. So if he's not hot, and he did have a night where he was hot against the Jazz, but if he's not hot, then that can make them a worse team. So I get where you're going with that. But... Are the Spurs going to come in trying guys out? Or are the Spurs going to come in desperate to make the playoffs? Yeah, I don't know. That's why I'm thinking that they don't have that much to play for, especially the second time they play. Right. I mean, I, so I don't I think, think we, I, I think we could really struggle just 
we're trying to figure it out. Yeah, and, and I get that, but I think other people may struggle yeah. too. I don't know that this is going to be the best basketball right out of the gate. I just think that the way the standings look, most of the combinations, and it, and it could break another way, but most of the combinations have the Jazz playing the Thunder of the Rockets. Now that home court, and it doesn't matter if you're four or five, you take that out of the mix. Um, it doesn't matter if you're three or six either, right? Not, not a lot. I mean, it, it could matter because if you feel like we really want to play this team and we really don't want to play that team. Okay, so that could matter. Um, but I think they're probably playing the Thunder or the Rockets. There is a chance they could get the Nuggets or the Mavs, but it seems pretty unlikely. Right. I mean, it's limited. So you just got to, yeah. I mean, um, it's funny, of all those teams, I wouldn't want to play the Mavs. The Mavs are the team that I fear the most and um if I if I was the Clippers Lakers. Even with ballers. their lack of playoff experience? Yeah, I just think they've got the most special player of the group. Um I think they have the most unique lineup with Chris Stapps. And while they certainly missed White Powell an awful lot, they have some lineup groupings that are really, really great. And if they can uh, put those on the floor for much longer periods of time. It'll, I don't know that they'll still be as great because maybe part of the reason those lineup combinations are so great that Rick Carlisle used them conservatively. But I wonder if, if they get out there. Um, and then, you know, if you look at the data coming out of Europe on that league, the shooting is at a premium, and they've got some, they've got good shooting. I'm surprised you said Doncic is the most, uh, I can't remember, it's special, unusual, whatever, uh, more than more than Harden, because there are plenty of Jazz fans listening to this who fear yeah, James I mean, Harden. I mean, I love James Harden, so... Um, you might concede uh, that point. But I, I mean, I, I don't know. I just, yeah, I mean, I love James Harden, and probably I'm overstretching on Doncic there. Um, but I do just feel like he's... I mean, if it's not today, it's tomorrow, right? Right. That's I. And I totally agree with you on that. I just don't know that it's today in Orlando. You know. Right. You, you, I think the by the way, I think the basketball is going to be incredible very quickly. Really good. Uh-huh. I'm glad to hear it. If you just if you just do the timing on it, so they practiced yesterday. Uh-huh. They actually have 21 days now before they play the first game, right? 20. What is it? Uh, like the 30th. So. Yeah, we're inside of three weeks. We're just inside okay, of. Okay, that's weeks, a right? lot. That's a, that's more than training camp. That's, that's, I mean, if you go to the first day of practice after media day, the first game of the year, that's the same amount. Good. Yeah. I hope it works, and I hope they come out so, flying. I'm, I'm ready so, to see some high-level basketball. And then let's say that the first – let's say that the eight seeding games aren't very good. Let's just concede that for a second. Um, By the time then, you get to the playoffs, it could be good. Yes, I get right. that. Right. We're then yeah. six, they're six weeks in, and here are the reasons why it'll be great. No travel. No fatigue. They're playing every other day which is how you keep an athlete at peak performance. There'll be no extended days off in the playoffs like they have been in the past, which mm-hmm. has been ridiculous. And instead of having played, this is where suddenly the break becomes an advantage. They're all now at peak performance. But instead of having played since October and an 82-game grind that they've been trying to manage and that they're mentally, you know, that they're fried, they're actually coming in having just had four months off and only been playing for a month. Now, there's the mental health element of being in a bubble, but that, you know, if you're, that'll be you know the downside. But I don't know if there will be a downside for all players. For some players, it'd be great. And I cannot tell you how fatiguing travel is. I just yeah. am the biggest believer that the that the as much as the sleep 
the actual airplane flight. Like I know there's been studies done on it. I'd like to read more. What that recycled air and being in the on an airplane does to your body and fatigues you at this, even if it's at 1% or 2% or 3% is enormous and that's gone. And I think we're going to see particularly, I mean, if you think about by the time we get to the second round, David, and you have the final eight teams and you don't have the wizards or nets doing their silly stuff that they're doing right now. And you now have been playing for what? Six weeks plus a three week training camp. You're nine. They're, they're in perfect shape. They're nine weeks in. I look forward to it. David, as always, thanks for a few minutes. We appreciate it. Talk to you soon. There's David Locke, and you can hear all of that online at 1280thezone.com. The entire show is there, and you can listen to everything. Uh, Stitcher, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play. Everything's podcast. Every hour of every show is there, plus some of the uh, individual uh, interviews are broken out. Coming up next, Matt Brown talking college football and all the changes we're facing. Stay with us. Take the zone with you wherever you go. Let's go. Download the all-new Zone Sports Network app on your phone and get live streaming of the zone as well as podcast editions of every show. From Salt Lake to Shanghai, Provo to Portugal, or Ogden to Oslo. Wherever you go, we'll tag along. Let's go. Download the new Zone app by searching Zone Sports Network wherever you shop for apps. It's the Zone Sports Network app. From 97.5, 1280, The Zone, and The Zone Sports Network. Time to talk college football right now with Matt Brown. He writes for the intercollegiate.com extra points newsletter lives in Chicago in big 10 country. And he joins us on the sprint special guest line. Sprint makes it safe and easy to get what you need online. Visit sprint.com for online services and local store availability. Matt, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me on today. Thanks for coming on. Did you find this news of the first couple leagues uh, going to a conference-only season surprising? Do you think they would hold off on it for a while? Did you think it would come to this? How, how, how big a breaking news was this to you? Yeah, I, I, I thought this was definitely in the works. I've heard a couple whispers that the Big Ten was considering this here for a while, but the timing definitely caught me off guard. There, there were certainly some administrators who thought that all of the, the power conferences were going to make some kind of unified decision. Uh, it made more sense for some more FCS leagues to announce that they were going to either postpone or cancel football, and I expect that to happen this week. So the timing was a little bit surprising, but the fact that schools would decide to do this, um, that makes sense to me. Mark Harlan came out on Twitter, University of Utah Athletic Director, and somebody asked him about uh, the BYU series. So, and obviously that uh, looking with the Pac-12 only playing conference games this year, that they wouldn't play that game. So somebody asked him for for next season, would Utah get the home game as far as that goes? Because the last game was played in Provo, and Harlan's response was, well, actually they would just continue it as it is, so BYU next year would get a home game. Uh, do you know as far as the Big 12? Because there's a number of Big 10, I mean, there's a number of conference uh, out-of-conference games that they all have, obviously, that they have contracts with. And so it's not just uh, one game, it's multiple games. Do you think that they would have the same idea? So next season, if Michigan State played whomever and the game was not scheduled to be in East Lansing, they would continue the schedule as is next year, or they make alterations to it? Um, this is going to vary for every 
every single school. It's going to depend on their legal department. It's going to depend on some of their own institutional financial needs. I think for some of these Big Ten schools and their partnerships with BYU or some of these Pac-12 schools, it's going to be a lot harder to just roll it over next year like BYU and Utah can. They're playing just about every year. You have a really deep relationship with uh, the two athletic staffers there, and you have state legislative um, pressure to continue playing that game, um, where that isn't really the case with, say, Michigan State BYU. So one of the really challenging things that these athletic departments are going to have to navigate the next couple of weeks beyond trying to figure out, okay, what, do my, what does my 2021-2022 schedule look like? Um, it's also going to be, what are my legal obligations to all of these teams that I just canceled with? Because you're right, uh, they, there's a lot of contract language in there. There are, there's usually some kind of buyout fee that might have to be uh, handled. And the Big Ten schools, even though they're, they're pretty wealthy, um, with the exception of Rutgers right now, <laughs> nobody wants to pay that full fee. Um, and so there's going to be a lot, a lot of negotiation, whether that means just we're rolling those games over to next year, rolling them over a little bit farther along, giving somebody an extra home game, anything to avoid having to pay a million, three, million, four cash fee right up front. Um, but in terms of any kind of standard, standardized response, like I wouldn't look for that. It's going to vary a ton by school. So do you think these other three Power Five leagues are going to hold on to their schedules, or do you think they're going to go conference only as well? I think everybody's going to go conference only. And to be, completely, to be completely honest with you, I think everyone's going to go conference only as, as a step towards eventually canceling or postponing this football season. The, the, the medical data, particularly in Big 12 and SEC country right now, has a lagging effect. So if things look bad now, they're almost assuredly going to continue to look bad in two weeks. Um, and a lot of the, the, the factors that have to go into place here with student safety and, that, and for academic safety, coach safety, uh, staffer safety, the people who are sanitizing these fields, we're not really any closer to getting good answers there than we were back in May. And so this is, this is a, a kind of Hail Mary desperation step to try and salvage football rather than anything that I, I think should give people particular confidence. So I know that there's a lot of fans in your footprint that are looking at this and and getting really angry or freaking out, like, you know, how dare the Pac-12 cancel games with BYU? You have to travel to Tucson now instead of the school that's 60 miles away. Look, it's all going to be moot, I think, in about four or five weeks. Um, I, this, this is a, certainly a step of things to come. So then that would obviously impact Notre Dame as far as that goes. If there were to be games, what do you think Notre Dame would do? Yeah, there's, there's been multiple ACC administrators who have you know, told Pete reporters in their footprint that, look, if we're going conference only, we're going to incorporate Notre Dame. Um, the, the, the specific game that I think still floated by a couple of times is that Notre Dame would play Miami, Florida. Um, there are enough ACC schools that have lost out-of-conference opponents right now that they would just slot in Notre Dame. There's obviously broadcaster interest in doing that. Um, and that's one of the things that they're modeling right now. I don't know if they're going to come up with a, an ACC-specific schedule with Notre Dame before external events force them into something a little bit more drastic. But like the idea that Notre Dame's going to be stuck playing BYU and Liberty for 10 weeks in a, in a weird quarantine season, like that, that's simply not going to happen. The Athletic has a story out about some elite players, and there's uh, different stuff from different agents about how many elite players it might be, 10, 20... Uh, maybe more than that. 
skipping this season. They don't think it's going to happen. They know if they sign with an agent, uh, they get paid living expenses right away. And certainly if you're the top 10 or 20 players, you don't want to mess up your first-round draft status. Trevor Lawrence probably couldn't mess up his first-round draft status unless there was a major injury. Uh, what do you think is going to happen with the elite players? Yeah, this this is a fascinating question to watch over the next couple of months because this is this is why you see such a variance in willingness to entertain spring football from Division One schools. You talk to schools in the MAC or in, I think in the Mountain West, you'll, you know they'll tell you both on and off the record, hey, this is something we should seriously consider. Like this is way better than not playing football. But if you're Ohio State, if you're Alabama or Clemson, if the NFL doesn't move the date of their NFL draft, which does not look like it's going to happen you could be missing a third or maybe even more of your starting lineup. They're, they're simply not going to play. And I, what I've been told is it isn't just the surefire first or second round draft choices. It's you know, any blue chip recruit who has NFL draft eligibility coming out, look, they've already got a bunch of films. Um, they don't want to risk an injury because an injury can knock them down multiple rounds. Um, so then if you're an elite program, that might mean that you're suddenly starting a bunch of freshmen and redshirt freshmen, and it's not really – super attractive. So, you know, as a college football fan, you might look at the spring and think, this might be the most wide-open season ever. Like, this is really your big chance for a non-blue blood to kind of sneak in like a 1990 um, and make the playoff. But it's, so much of that's going to depend on what all these schools legislatively decide to do. And, yeah, if you're, if you're in a weak program with a ton of NFL draft talent, you have a big interest in, in not playing in the spring for this exact reason. I think a lot of people are not going to play. We saw this recruiting season in the spring that it was done virtually without any visits and without coaches flying all over the place. The financial ramifications obviously are significant if there's even a loss of one game. Do you think, have you heard anything as far as maybe changing these rules and going more to a cost-saving measure as far as recruiting goes? You know, that's interesting. There's been a couple of schools that were having this conversation even before Corona, about trying to uh, handle travel a little bit more responsibly. Now, there's a reason a lot of these G5 schools you know, try to do as much of their recruiting either you know, on campus or in-state at some of these camps so they don't have to fly to Florida every other week. But that is a, a significant expense. Um, I don't know if, we, if this whole thing can be done remotely, though. And it's, it's going to be really weird in the spring. You're going to have most of the junior college systems playing football in the spring. And, you know, I, I think for programs in this particular footprint who, re, who rely on JUCO systems or rely on kids that aren't four-star players by their sophomore year in high school, you really need that evaluation. You need to see them on tape lots of times. You probably need to see them on tape against something other than their local high school competition. And switching to a purely remote situation or mostly remote, I think is going to potentially take away scholarship opportunities for some of those kids. If you live in Dade County, uh, or you live in, in the Metroplex in, in Dallas, you're going to have a lot more opportunities to get that film, and maybe you don't necessarily have to go to every single camp uh, to, to, get, to get recruited. And maybe that's not really the case if you live in St. George or if you live in Idaho. Um, so that's, that's something I, I hope doesn't really come to fruition. There's going to be a lot of pretty draconian cost-saving um, measures that are going to go into place over the next year all over athletic departments, whether that's regional scheduling, whether that's dropping some Olympic sports, whether that's some pretty significant reductions in coaching and uh, coaching salaries and staff sizes, I think schools are going to want to do all of that stuff before doing things that they think will make it harder for them to recruit and compete. 
Matt Brown joining us. He writes for the intercollegiate.com Extra Points uh, newsletter. Lives in Chicago and Big Ten country, but is dropping St. George and Idaho knowledge. Good work, Matt. Very nice on the local geography. And you got... You know where all the truck stops are on I-15, clearly. You got this thing mapped out. I'm curious with all this, uh, with recruiting being so different. Now, now the number of transfers has been growing anyway, but is it about to go off the charts for a couple reasons? One, some of the biggest schools are going to see that they missed on some kids, and uh, they've got some kids that they want to run off, basically. And some kids who are really good get overlooked and are at lower-level schools, and quite frankly, they want to play in some brighter lights and some bigger stadiums. So for for those reasons, and maybe some others I'm missing, do you think we're about to see a massive wave of transfers when things get back to quote-unquote normal in, what, a year or two? Yeah, I I absolutely do. In fact, I think you'd probably start to see that even earlier than that, right? Like, Ivy League's not playing fall sports, and they don't offer redshirt years. They don't offer graduate transfers. So if you've got eligibility left and you're about to graduate from Dartmouth, you're hitting that portal right now. And that's going to be... You know, I think there's a lot of really good FCS and even some SBS quality players in that league. I would expect the Patriot League and probably the Pioneer League to follow suit in the next couple of days. That's going to put some kids in the portal. Uh, but you're right. And I think this is, this is the phenomenon you're describing, I think, is even more true in kind of the farther down the recruiting totem pole that you go. If you're a program that recruits heavily from JUCO ranks or from some of these developmental players, well, if you're a kid that suddenly has to do all the schooling online for an entire year and you were an academic risk beforehand that you're coming out of a JUCO, I think there's a, a higher chance that you're not going to be able to qualify um, academically for the NCAA because you're not going to have access to some of that same supplemental resources uh, that you had before. You're going to have a lot of misevaluations for people that don't have a, a lot of the same resources. And you're going to have a lot of people transferring for all kinds of reasons. People are going to want to stay closer to home. Uh, people are, are, are going to want to change positions. There's going to be assistant coaching attrition all over the place. Yeah, and then you add all of that to the fact that NCAA administrators have been looking at liberalizing transfer rules generally over the last year. They're trying to go to Congress right now to get an antitrust exemption, and that might be something that Congress tells them they have to do. Like, you have to start letting kids transfer more freely if we're going to help you out of here. So. I would not be shocked at all in the next you know, year or two. I don't want to say free agency because I think that has a bunch of negative connotations that don't make sense, but are you going to see even more kids across college football try to change schools? Yes, just like I would think that a lot of students generally are going to be wanting to change schools. Well, Matt, we appreciate a few minutes. Thanks for joining us to talk a little college football. It's, it's my pleasure. There's, there's no shortage of things going on, fellas. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> There's Matt Brown from the intercollegiate.com and the Extra Points newsletter. He lives in Chicago. He's in Big Ten country. Next up, we're going to L.A., Pac-12 country, uscfootball.com. Ryan Abraham joins us next. Take the zone with you wherever you go. Let's go. Download the all-new Zone Sports Network app on your phone and get live streaming of the zone as well as podcast editions of every show. From Salt Lake to Shanghai, Provo to Portugal, or Ogden to Oslo, wherever you go, we'll tag along. Let's go. Download the new Zone app by searching Zone Sports Network wherever you shop for apps. It's the Zone Sports Network app. From 97.5, 1280, The Zone, and The Zone Sports Network. DJ and PK, it's 97.5 and 1280, The Zone. We are brought to you in part by WCF Insurance, reminding you to be careful out there. Time to welcome back in a friend of the show, Ryan Abraham, has joined us many times, and he joins us one more time. He runs uscfootball.com and the podcast of champions. Ryan, welcome back to the show. Thanks for coming on again. 
Oh, my pleasure. We got some uh, weird college football news going on, man. It's a strange time out here when we're covering these teams. So I'm I'm curious. Uh, did anything about this surprise you, or given the way that the numbers have been going in Southern California and in Arizona and earlier uh, in the spring in Seattle? Who knows what's going to happen in September and October and, and conference only and the flexibility and schedules the only way to handle this. So you figure it had to happen. Yeah, I think what uh, it was a little shocking when the Big Ten came out with that announcement. I thought the Power Five commissioners that they you know they communicate quite a bit that was pretty clear uh you know it seems like they caught a lot of the other conferences off guard um but once you you know you cancel a couple of huge profile out of conference games between the big 10 and the pac-12 it almost left the pac-12 no choice and like you said there's you know different states in the in the pac-12 footprint and california's had problems arizona's had recent problems and uh, you know, Washington early on in the pandemic had problems. So I think it makes sense. Uh, it might just be buying some time until the inevitable happens. But really, to me, it comes down to flexibility because we don't have a, a true leader in college football. There's no college football czar, per se. And the NCAAs only come out with statements like, yeah, you guys do whatever you want. It'll be OK. <laughs> so I feel like this is a you kind of pull the, pull the reins back in a little bit and you can at least control your conference. You're still spanning multiple states and multiple local governments, state governments, but at least you have a leader over this smaller group of schools and you can kind of make decisions based on that. So and without having someone that's running all of college football or at least running the power five, I think this was the next logical step. So if there's a possible way to still go on with the season, they'll be able to do it on a conference level. So do you think that, you know, Notre Dame and SC are such high-profile games, and obviously they play Stanford and they rotate either being in Northern or Southern California, you think that that is 100% not going to happen this year? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've thought about it, and I, I feel like the, the issue would be, if you look at the USC and Stanford schedule, it's almost like Notre Dame's part of the conference because, you know, every other year you have five home conference games and four road and then vice versa but that Notre Dame fills that fifth spot so Stanford and USC each have five and five it could possibly work out uh, I, there might be a possibility that happens but then you're introducing it's sort of like introducing a foreign family member to your like quarantine group you know to your so you bring Notre Dame in who are probably be playing quite a bit of an ACC schedule so it might be a little too complex but just the way the schedules have worked if you're going to do a 10 game schedule for Stanford and USC, having Notre Dame as part of that wouldn't be, I don't think it would be a terrible thing. And the travel really isn't that much further if you're going from, you know, Seattle to, uh, you know, to, to, you know, Los Angeles or whatever, but it's not that much different. I, I don't know if it's going to, I think it's going to be adding too much complexity because it's probably easier just to have Notre Dame go with one conference going with the ACC. But it seems like there's still that option out there. We just don't know how they're going to like shake out the schedules at this point. So the thing I thought from the start, and I think about this too much, and PK will be the first to tell you that it's fun to watch me and laugh at me, uh, and many people do. He's not alone. It's not just him. Uh, but the one thing I did think was, I, I, what you said about the family is a very good way of putting that. You know, they, they are worried that some of the schools that they were going to play that have less money, whether it's the Mountain West or the Big Sky or New Mexico State, I think, had a game with UCLA, uh, that they wouldn't be testing as regularly. And they could have a bunch of players get infected and impact, you know, conference games and all that. So I kind of get that thinking. But I got to admit, I was surprised they didn't go with like a 10 plus one. And if you're not in the Pac-12 title game, 
uh, you know, you could play one non-league game at the end, and that might salvage a Notre Dame game, right? That might salvage Utah BYU. Everybody probably has a you know something on their schedule like that that they could salvage or or even create, and it'd be the last game, so you wouldn't play another team and risk infecting them. It would be up to every school, and they'd be on their own at that point. And Mark Harlan, the Utah AD, was on, and uh, you can listen to it at 1280thezone.com because you might want to reference this comment. He said that TV games on the networks, ESPN and Fox, are worth about $5 bucks. Sound the way he said it made it sound like they were worth just a little less than $5 million. And then a Pac-12 network game would be worth a little less than that, obviously. Um, and so I thought they might try to salvage some of these games. You know, It would certainly be there. And the fact that they didn't, they must have thought of it tells me that they think that they're going to need 14 Saturdays to get 10 games in and that there really isn't going to be time for an 11th one, that it's going to be that bad in the fall. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And and the, the part we brought up earlier about flexibility, we've seen college football schedules, you know, a decade out, like just set in stone. There's some opportunity there where, like you mentioned, what if a couple teams get their games canceled, conference games, and – you know, USC Alabama never didn't happen, but Alabama was supposed to play like Vanderbilt and Vanderbilt dropped out and USC was supposed to play like Cal or something and they drop out. Could they say, you know, a week in advance, well, why don't we play each other? You know, where you maybe that game that was on the schedule that was gone, that now you both have openings, you could broke it out. And then, like you said, if it's towards the end of the season or after the season that there's still an open week or two, maybe you add that extra game where there's no. Uh, you know, the, the only danger would be just between the two teams. You're not going to be spreading it to the other ones. So that, I, I think the whole point of this is going to be we have to be flexible, and this is not a sport that we've seen a lot of flexibility in. So it's going to be a big shift for all the powers and all the schools because you're just not used to doing things sort of on the fly. And we might have to do that if you're canceling games week to week because, oh, this team got a bunch of cases or this team got a bunch of cases. So what is SC doing as far as any form of football activity right now? So they, today they're supposed to start their phase three uh, of integrating the players back onto campus. The first phase was really just the local players. It didn't even include staying uh, on, uh, playing stairs on campus. They were coming, you know, from their homes. They would come work out in these pods of eight or ten guys with a trainer and a, and a, a strength coach, and then go back. And then last week they're supposed to start on Monday. They ended up starting on Wednesday their phase two, which was going to allow players that didn't live locally to come and actually stay on campus. So it was kind of a big deal last week to get players to actually stay in the dorms, but it's pretty short because now they're supposed to start phase three because nationally, you know, you're allowed to do more team activities uh, starting today. I think it's eight hours a week of like uh, team meetings and conditioning and stuff. Instead of like the Zoom stuff, actually you can have more team activity. So that's supposed to start uh, today we've here. There's, you know, they've they've not had a whole lot of cases. Um, there've been a couple. We've heard of a few football players uh, that have had it and recovered. And like you mentioned, like Notre Dame, I don't think had any cases. Um, so that's going to be something to watch. Like how many schools? They're not seeing a Clemson or an Alabama thing where you have a whole bunch of guys getting sick. And I think just bringing them along slowly, it's helped. But now going forward, now we're start pushing towards that fall camp date. Instead of working out in these smaller groups, you're going to have more full team things and does it you know does someone get it and spread it through there so we're going to have to watch that closely but today's kind of a bigger day it's starting that last phase where really this is kind of like that starting the six-week period to starting the football season so now excuse me 
Now I think we're going to know a lot more because you're going to have more guys together as, instead of like in these small pods. They're going to be more full team things. Don't know how much you've heard from the players about this, but obviously LSU, Texas, Clemson, you know, we heard of a bunch of positive tests, but then I read a story about Notre Dame. They've been in an on-campus hotel, and I think it's one I actually stayed in when I was back there for an NIT game, uh, and they've only had, I think, one the one test. And the thing I read in the story was that they've made it really clear to Notre Dame guys, if you want football, you can't cheat on these rules. These rules have to be, they have to hold firm, they have to be absolute. And how badly do these guys want to play football? Now here, we've seen a running back who's actually from Southern California, Jordan Wilmore, was on social media saying, football, I miss you so much. And it was with a shot, it was on social media with a shot of him at practice. Do you have a sense with the USC football players, how much they've had this spelled out to them, how much they're adhering to it? Yeah, um, so we, you know, they're being pretty quiet uh, about this stuff. We're seeing some stuff on social media. I know Marquis Step, the running back from Indiana, was upset on Twitter that he's not going to get an opportunity to play. Uh, you know, against Notre Dame, you had mentioned before. You know, his hometown, uh, his hometown team. It's funny with Notre Dame. I think they have to take it seriously because they're sort of like the the alienated family member. They want to join someone else's kind of quarantine group, and if they have a bunch of cases, no one's going to let them in. So they, I think they really have to take it seriously. But in, in the, the California schools as well, I, I feel like because of all the outbreaks there, I think they need to uh, really take things seriously. I mean, the, the message we've heard from – the administration and from the coaches and stuff is is really for the players that you know this this isn't something you can really cheat on and we've heard about just you know a case here or a case there uh, as players start to return to campus but I think they've done a pretty good job overall but if you're in a hot spot you're in Arizona you're in California I think you really do have to because if it was USC that had a whole bunch of cases like we saw with Clemson I mean. That might cause the whole Pac-12 to shut down. Who knows? So I think they're. I think they've done a pretty good job of it. It's obviously, you know, unprecedented. We've never seen this uncharted territory here. But I think the message we've been hearing from the players and coaches has been pretty positive as far as like what they've been able to do and not really, you know, cheating the system. So they, you know, try to keep people as safe as possible. As far as football goes, you know, with Harrell running the offense, it's different than what SC has traditionally been with those Heisman Trophy winners and all those great running backs. Uh, how is recruiting going regarding top-notch running backs? Yeah, the running back situation hasn't been as good. They they brought in Mike Jenks, who was uh, you know working with uh, Graham Harrell. It's funny, you know, we I mentioned Marquis Step earlier. Mike Jenks said he's never had a running back like that. That you know, two hundred thirty pounds that can still run. So I think there's an adjustment on the the coaching staff as well as far as trying to figure out you know, what direction do they want to go uh, with with running backs? And they picked up uh, Brandon Campbell, uh, the four-star running back out of the state of Texas. So, they, you know, there's still those Texas ties between Harrell and Jenks and, and there. But it's not, you know, haven't had much success out here on the West Coast uh, recruiting running backs. And I think part of it was last year they had all their guys get hurt. They end up starting, you know, Keaton Christian for a few games later. He's a true freshman. They thought that we're going to redshirt. And they're trying to figure, you know, I think they want to get a feel for what how they're going to use these running backs. We heard Harold say he'd like to run the football 45% of the time. Uh, they get their quarterback hurt. They get, you know, a bunch of the running backs hurt. I don't think we got to see fully what he intended to do. So if they do have a season, I think you're going to see a more balanced attack, but still with uh, Keaton's lowest, you know, throwing the football all over the place, but running the ball a little bit more. And I think that would help with the running back recruiting going forward. Right now, it's sort of like this 
they're not sure. Like, are you going to use running backs? Are you not going to? I know that the plan was to do that with all the injuries and stuff. I think that got derailed a little bit. So we'll see if they, they get a season and they're able to do that. I feel like it will be – it'll make the fans a little happier that they're running the ball more than, you know, just the, the – it's not the Mike Leach pass-happy air raid that some of the fans kind of think it was going to be or it was. Once you get people spread out, you can really run the ball. <laughs> I, I, yeah. wouldn't, I wouldn't worry too much about that. that. That seems like the last thing USC fans need to worry about. Uh, watching the recruiting unfold here, you know, I wouldn't want to guarantee anything on any one kid, but it seems like USC is getting enough high-profile kids. It really seems like USC and Oregon are cleaning up, and even I, who knows what this season's going to look like. But assuming we're back to something that looks like normal in 2021, those two schools ought to be posed to kind of or, or, or set to be the um, the pillars of the conference that you expect them to be, and that we've seen in other conferences where Oklahoma and Alabama and Ohio State have been those pillars. Clemson now. Do you think USC and Oregon are setting up for that, where they're both going to be loaded and they should be on track, even though it'll irritate Ute fans for a Pac-12 title game? Yeah, I mean, it looks that way. The USC's back to recruiting the kind of way they should be. Uh, they normally were. I mean, last year was the worst recruiting class we'd ever seen. Uh, they hired a bunch of new assistants that actually go out and recruit instead of uh, – they, they were kind of part-time recruiters before. And that you just can't do that in college football. If you're a, a big development program like Utah where you take guys that are three stars that maybe not as many people know about and you turn them into you know first and second round draft picks – that's not really USC's MO. They need to bring in the, the four- and five-star guys. So they're getting back to that now. Dante Williams, who they brought in from Oregon, has been a big part of it. But Oregon's recruiting like crazy, and I think they've done a good job developing players as well. So I think everyone has their own DNA as far as programs go. USC sort of got away from that a little bit. But I think you're, to see Oregon recruit at this elite level, getting best, you know, best players in California, best players on the West Coast the last couple of years, uh, I mean, there's, I think they're setting themselves up really well with Mario Cristobal. USC needs to get back there. This class, you know, if it, if it holds together, is back to kind of normal for USC. The last couple of years have just been really shaky, especially last year. I think now Clay Elton's got a much better staff, and he's putting that together to, to bring in more talent. they got to use it. they got to utilize it. But they're at least bringing that talent in like they used to for, you know, for decades before. Yeah, one of those guys is Vic Suoto, who's a BYU guy, obviously a Polynesian. So we got some people up here who are nervous that Vic is going to come steal our guys away. That guy is amazing. I mean, he's only been a college, a full-time college football coach for three years. You know, he followed Broco Mendenhall around, and man, just talking to him, the energy he has, and it's just infectious. And you could see if you're a big defensive lineman, Polynesian defensive lineman, anyone. I mean, you just talk to the guy. And he, it's electrifying. I mean, he really can sell the program and what you know what it means to to be a great football player. And he's shown it, you know, in his coaching career and also in his playing career. So he's he is great. He's someone that's you know, great to talk to. And uh, I think that was a really good hire. Sort of one of those unproven guys, but as soon as you see him, you're like, okay, this guy's going to be a really good defensive line coach for a long time. You think we're set up for a, a lot of transferring with all the Zoom recruiting that's been going on between kids getting overlooked who are willing to go to brighter lights and all that stuff and teams that regret some of the guys they signed? Is it going to be crazy in the next couple of years? I think we're seeing the commitments at a crazy level. Like it's more than double the, 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 this time of year, the number of verbal commitments that are happening, which to me means there's going to be a lot more decommitments as well. And I feel like the transfers are going to – this isn't going to – curb the you know transfers have been gone the way up i think this is only going to be worse there's going to be so many different situations 
if you have a team that you know is in a conference that maybe you know having to cancel a bunch of their games, you're going to see some of the players want to jump ship. I mean, I, it's it's such uncharted territory. Like we said, I feel like transferring is going to be one of those you know that one of the power plays that you can make if you're a player because you don't have a lot of uh, you know tools in your toolbox as far as you know t- things to do to help yourself. Transferring is one of them. So I I think you're right. I think we're going to see. A whole bunch of transfers going on, and maybe you're sitting out a year, and maybe it's a time you don't care if you're going to. This is a good year to sit out because you don't even know what's going to happen in the season. So, you you mitigate you're mitigating some of the risk of oh, I got to sit out a season, but I'm sitting out this weird COVID season. So, does it really matter? So, yeah, I, I don't think we've seen it yet, but as we get the season becomes more defined. I think you're going to see a lot of them. It's like, yeah, I'm just going to skip this season. I'll transfer somewhere else and and uh, pick up my career there. Did the coaches basically tell uh, JT Daniels that he wasn't going to win the job? Is that why he didn't want to stay and compete? You know, it's funny. Graham Harrell is a huge Keaton Slovis fan, but Clay Helton loves JT Daniels. I think I think Clay Helton would have given JT Daniels every opportunity to play. And, I, and we've seen, you know, USC started three different quarterbacks last year. To me, it made the most sense for JT Daniels to stick around. He would have shown everyone that his, you know, knee recovery from surgery is going well. He was going to play. They're going to blow out some teams, so he would play even if Keaton Slovis didn't get hurt. But there's a good chance that he would get hurt too. So um, I felt like that would have been his greatest opportunity. And if Slovis would come back for his junior year, and then he's going to be a starter, JT could leave. He'd already been graduated and still have two years to play. You know, in this case, he's. Not going to be able to play that first year at Georgia, but like you said, like this was not a season that you probably wouldn't, were going to want to play anyway. He could learn the system there and then kind of go forward and have an opportunity to start the next couple of years, unless he gets some kind of waiver. So I just, you know, logistically, it just made sense for JT Daniels to stick around another year, and I think he would have had an opportunity to play, but I don't think he was. I mean, Keaton Slovis was just so good last year; it'd really be hard to to overtake him. So I feel like Clay Hilton was going to give him every opportunity. And JT Daniels and his family decided it was just better to go somewhere else. Ryan, as always, we appreciate it. Great to have you come on and talk some Pac-12 football, talk some USC football with us. And uh, thanks a lot. Oh, thanks for having me on, guys. I mean, hopefully, crossing your fingers that we get a season. But I don't know, man. It's getting scary out there. <laughs> There's Ryan Abraham from uscfootball.com. When we come back, what is trending? All the headlines are on the way.